Grant us the grace of seeing. On this fourth Sunday in Lent, I bring you Lenten roses. They're not actually in the rose family. They're a hellebore, as Rose Stewart could tell you because she gave me the plant. During Lent, I've been pondering David White's poem, The Lightest Touch. In it, he describes how he experiences writing poetry, how poetry comes to him. I will read it twice, and then I will pause for a time of silence so that we can let the words that we've already heard and spoken this morning settle into our hearts. And by the way, Lazarus, mentioned in this poem, will be back next Sunday. The lightest touch. Good poetry begins with the lightest touch, a breeze arriving from nowhere, a whispered healing arrival, a word in your ear, a settling into things. Then, like a hand in the dark, it arrests the whole body, stealing you for revelation. In the silence that follows a great line, you can feel Lazarus deep inside even the laziest, most deftly afraid part of you lift up his hands and walk toward the light. The lightest touch. Good poetry begins with the lightest touch. A breeze arriving from nowhere, a whispered healing arrival, a word in your ear, a settling into things. Then, like a hand in the dark, it arrests the whole body, stealing you for revelation. In the silence that follows a great line, you can feel Lazarus deep inside even the laziest, most deathly afraid part of you. Lift up his hands, and walk toward the light. Our daughter Wanda and I check in, not quite every morning, as she walks to work in Philadelphia and gets the trolley and then sometimes calls me back on the other end of the trolley ride. This week I told her I was preaching and she said, what are you preaching on, Mom? And I said, John 9, the man born blind. And she says, oh, tell them about Alamu. So I will. Some of you know his name from the Mennonite World Conference Global History Project. Alamu was one of the authors of the Africa volume entitled Anabaptist Songs in African Hearts. Alamu has often stayed with Herb and I when he comes to the States from Ethiopia where he lives, and he's come to church here a time or two, I think. 
Unlike the man in our today's text, Alamu wasn't born blind, but untreated trachoma took his sight when he was about age seven, living in northern Ethiopia in a remote part of the country near the famous Lalabella rock-hewn churches. His father, in desperation, took him to the capital city, Addis Ababa, and pushed him in front of Emperor Haile Selassie's motorcade so that Haile Selassie would have pity on him and do something because his father didn't know what to do about his blindness. Mennonite Mission had just established the blind school in Addis Ababa, and the emperor made the connection for Alamu with that school and actually housed him in the palace for a short time in the interim till he could get into the school. And some of our colleagues that we taught with in Ethiopia were first of all teachers in that blind school. So we heard many stories about the blind school and learned to know Alamu eventually. When we arrived in the late 1960s to teach in Ethiopia at the boarding school, we met Alamu, the social studies history teacher. He played the piano in chapel, and what was very impressive about him was all the students needed to do was say the number of a hymn, whether it was from the life songs, which we used, or one of the Amharic songs, say the number, and he would just start playing. He had memorized many, many of the numbers and connected them with the tunes. He was a much-loved teacher, and so it was understandable that at various times throughout his teaching career, devout students would pray for him to have his sight restored, asking him repeatedly to confess his sins. Those sins might be keeping him from being healed. Alamu would patiently say, hey, I'm up to date. It's not my sins that's keeping me from being healed. And he would graciously let them pray for him, because in his heart he certainly wanted to be healed. And he certainly knew the story about the man born blind. He would remind them, though, that it was a bit more complicated than they thought, because his blindness, in fact, was the reason he had gotten to the blind school in Addis Ababa, and that's where he came to faith in God. So you can probably understand why my daughter Wanda said to me, tell him about Alamu. Even though he, wasn't feel, he hasn't been healed physically, Alamu lives as one of the children of light talked about in Ephesians 5. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. Try to find out what's pleasing to the Lord. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Through the years, Alamu remains right at the top of my list of persons that I want to imitate in my walk with God. Yet I cannot forget the hardships and suffering that have come along with Alamu's blindness. He's now, in his older years, actually diabetic, so he struggles with how to take his own blood samples, and technology has helped him a bit with that. Um, and he's also suffered through the years the persecution that the church went through under the Marxist regime. 
At one point in Nazareth, the town that we lived in, the elders of the local church were being threatened by government authorities, and they said, we're going to take you off and question you. Well, questioning wasn't just usually questioning. It was quite a bit more than that in many cases. But they looked at the group of elders and they said, but this guy here, he's blind, he can stay behind, he doesn't need to come along, we'll exempt him. And he said, nothing doing, I'm going with them. If you're taking them, I'm going too, I'm an elder, I'm going to go to the questioning. Well, they didn't take them, and I don't know if it was because Alamu stood up on his hind legs or why, but they didn't take them for the questioning that time. But he struggled along with the church during those years of persecution. So when I lay his story beside the story in John 9, it calls me up short. I have to grapple with the fact that great as Alamu's faith is, he has not been healed physically. But his lack of bitterness whittles away at my cynicism and the questions I have about healing. His joy and his sense of humor are impressive. He takes himself lightly. An example of this is one of the last times he was in Lancaster. I took him shopping at Goodwill over here for clothing for his wife, Ababich. This is a thing we always do. We shop like crazy when he comes. Since he can't just eyeball a sweater or a jacket for his wife, he tries it on. He puts it on. So there we were in the store with Alamu decked out in a pink woman's sweater and me looking on rather helplessly since I had to take his word for it that it was a good choice, even though I was the one that could see. First thing we knew, a clerk was over there with us, and she had been watching our little drama the whole time. Okay, here's this white woman, this black man who's blind, and he's wearing a pink woman's sweater. And so she came over and she informed us that he had a woman's sweater on. <laughs> and Alamu very politely explained the whole situation to her. And then as soon as she walked away, the two of us just busted up laughing. So in spite of all he's suffered and is suffering, Alamu finds life delightful and he carries in his body the joy of God. Tomorrow I'm going to the seminary class that I teach in Philadelphia and giving them a midterm test. I'm sure they're not looking forward to my arrival. One of the questions that will be on the test is for them to reflect on this portion of a quote from Richard Rohr in his book, Everything Belongs. And this is what Rohr says. You do not resolve the, the God question in your head or even in the perfection of moral response. It is resolved in you when you agree to bear the mystery of God God's suffering for the world and God's ecstasy in the world. In another place, he uses the word joy in the world. And then he goes on to say, agreeing to this task is much harder, I'm afraid, than just trying to be good. I'll read the quote again. You do not resolve the God question in your head or even in the perfection of moral response. It is resolved in you when you agree to bear the mystery of God, God's suffering for the world 
and God's ecstasy in the world. Agreeing to this task is much harder, I'm afraid, than just trying to be good. Alamu exemplifies this for me. He bears in his body the mystery of God. And when we, like the blind man in today's passage, say, I believe, we are committing ourselves to live as children of the light. And I think that means, among other things, that we bear the mystery of God in our very bodies, God's suffering for the world and God's great joy in the world. That will surely take us into the valley of the shadow of death on many, many levels. This week we've had at least three deaths touch our congregation. And we count on the comfort that the light of God brings when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We feel the shadow of death in the many losses and troubles that we experience on a regular basis. And we need God's shepherding presence with us always. And as Keith said this morning, a year ago, he talked about the metaphors of light and darkness. And I remember that. It stuck with me through the, through the year. And we talked about it. I'm concerned that our metaphors don't get brittle. We use them in the same way so often that we become hardened to the nuances of meaning in light and darkness. I know that Jesus said he's the light of the world, so I don't want to sound arrogant when I say we shouldn't overuse that image. But once in a while, like Keith, I like to think of the darkness as comforting. For several months now, my eyesight's been failing significantly. When I went to the doctor last week, I learned that my cataracts, yeah, I'm getting old, my cataracts aren't yet bad enough in both eyes to have the surgery. And so he said, you have to wait till the other one gets really bad too. What's well, great news, you know? <laughs> but ironically, the visit brought today's text to my mind. Not so much because I'm concerned that I'm going to go blind, but because of that bright light that he shone in my eyes when he was checking my eyes out, I welcomed the darkness because the light was so bright that it was really uncomfortable, and I wouldn't want that kind of light all the time. So I'm not ready to say that light is always categorically good and darkness is always categorically bad. I'd like both images to remain fresh for us. It's important that we don't over-identify with the light and the right. It is easy to see when others do that, and especially when the result is very obvious violence toward those classified as in the dark. This was underscored for me this week when I went to FNM to hear a lecture by Mirzolf, can't say his name right, Mirzolf, Wolf, on Muslim-Christian relations. Wolf is from Croatia, and he directs the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. I bought his book entitled The End of Memory, Remembering Rightly in a Violent World, and I'm reading his thoughts 
on how we can remember wrongdoing when, which we have suffered and still neither hate nor disregard, but rather love the wrongdoer. Wolf is married to an American woman, and he's a Christian theologian. And he told us, in, in the book he tells, and also in the lecture, he talked about in 1984 he was summoned to serve in the military of what was then Yugoslavia. For months, most of his unit was spying on him. The security officer, he called him Captain G, was usually present at the interrogations. And now writing and looking back on that, Wolf asks, how does one seeking to love the wrongdoer condemn rightly? How do we condemn wrong in a right way? And he goes on to say, in the Christian tradition, condemnation is an element of reconciliation, not an isolated, independent judgment, even when reconciliation cannot be achieved. So we condemn most properly in the act of forgiving, in the act of separating the doer from the deed. This is how God in Christ condemned all wrongdoing. This is how I ought to condemn Captain G's wrongdoing. One died for all, including me. Wrapped up with that piece of good news is a condemning accusation. I, too, am a wrongdoer. How does the history of my own wrongdoing figure in my condemning memory of Captain G? Not at all. Then I would always stand radically outside the company of wrongdoers as I remember his wrongdoing. He would be in the darkness, and I would be in the light. But would that be right? Moral judgments are not only absolute judgments, they're also comparative judgments. And then he goes on to end his, his conversation saying that if he is to remember Captain G's abuse rightly, then he must remember it as a self-confessed wrongdoer himself rather than that of a self-styled saint. I take Wolf's cautions to heart. For me, it's easy to look down on Jesus' disciples and the Ethiopian students who prayed for Alamu. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents that he was born blind? Or, Alamu, confess your sins so you can be healed. I could smugly attribute it all to pre-scientific responses. While we have learned more, much still remains a mystery. We're still intrigued with the relationship between our bodies and trauma and stress and sin and suffering. Just this week, someone talked about the brain studies that look at what happens when anger and fear release the steroid hormone cortisol and how it compromises the connection between the left and right hemispheres of the brain. All of that knowledge, though, doesn't put us on a superior ground. We are one with the disciples and the Ethiopian students in wanting to both figure out life and to find healing. So from today's text and Miroslav Wolf, I hear a new invitation to humility and a clear call to own our own shortcomings and sins especially as we recall the wrongs done to us. 
Having reflected on the man born blind and my friend Alamu, I pray for all of us. God, grant us the grace of seeing. From Richard Rohr comes a particular challenge to live in the light, bearing the mystery of God in our bodies, God's suffering for the world, and God's ecstasy and joy in the world. So hear now the words of David White once more. Good poetry begins with the lightest touch, a breeze arriving from nowhere, a whispered healing arrival, a word in your ear, a settling into things. Then, like a hand in the dark, it arrests the whole body, stealing you for revelation. In the silence that follows a great line, you can feel Lazarus deep inside even the laziest, most deathly afraid part of you lift up his hands and walk toward the light. <laughs>